the network for the AV industry. What are you listening to? This. This is AV. This. This. This is AV Nation. This is AV Nation. This is AV Week. Episode 191, recorded Friday, April 17th, 2015. Mickey Bites. Ready. AV, AV Week. Performing scan. Week. Online. This is AV Week. This is AV Week, your weekly wrap-up of audiovisual news and information. My name is Tim Albright. I'm your host. Welcome. Good afternoon. Uh, it is Friday. If you're watching this live, if you're not, well, that is whatever day of the week it is. Uh, with us this week is Mr. George Tucker from World Stage. How are you, sir? I'm doing fine. Thank you very much. 15 games to go. That's all I've got to say. George is talking about hockey, of course, and well, he's a Rangers fan, so we'll get the other side of that. Miss Dawn Mead, <laughs> who's a P- Pittsburgh Hello. Penguin fan, and they lost last night. How are you, ma'am? Other than the loss, very good, thanks. Very good. She is from NetAV. Also with us is Matt D. Scott from Omega Audio Video in London, Ontario. How are you, brother? I'm doing great. I'm outside, finally. So I'm happy. All right. Uh, And last but not least, I'm going to fanboy here for a second. I've watched this guy for a little while. Uh, His name is Robert Heron from Heron Fidelity. How are you, sir? Yeah, terrific. Thank you for inviting me, Tim. Absolutely. Thank you for coming. Robert's been on, uh, well, nearly every tech show I think I've ever watched, from from Twit to Techzilla to HD Nation to, yeah, he's done a lot of stuff. Um, probably one of the smartest guys that I, f- I follow, at least. I don't know him personally, but uh, when it comes to uh, HD and, and signals and uh, calibrating displays and stuff like that. Um, a number of years ago, you, you, you broke the news to me about Panasonic getting out of you know, plasmas and this, that, and the other. So thank you very much for coming. Thank you for the compliment. Absolutely. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Um, all right. So we're going to cover a couple of things here. Uh, first of all, before we get started, um, Infocom's coming up. And there's a couple of, of uh, awards ceremonies or our, our award seasons. One is is the Women AV folks, uh, our buddy Jennifer Bullard. Uh, you've got about a week or so if you want to get a woman uh, who has helped mentor you uh, or someone else um, to you know help out. Um, you have the nominations there. It's womeninav.com. Uh, uh, also, Infocom has uh, extended their awards uh, for Young AV. Actually, they have a Women in AV as well, CTS holder, this, that, and the other. So uh, check that out at infocom.org. Uh, you can nominate uh, your favorite person. So, all right, the Apple Watch is going on sale. Uh, they are having their first pre-orders have gone over $1 million. Uh, for the first couple of weeks. And uh, Robert, we'll start with you on this one, uh, simply because um, what we're going to do is uh, we'll start with you on this one because uh, what I want to get from you is what exactly uh, this means for the wearable space uh, to have uh, these pre-sales for Apple, uh, this Apple product at, at over a million. I, I think it shows specifically that there's a tremendous interest for people who own an iPhone or another Apple product that it can interface with. However, I, I think on the hardware side, it, it is really a first-generation product. And and compared to other wearables that are out there right now that have a little more maturity, uh, a larger app base, although that could change rather quickly in Apple's case, that whole limitation on power and having to recharge a device 
less than 24 hours. And, and Apple's claiming an 18-hour power uh, window, basically, for keeping the device powered. That's not even a full day. And compare that to something like Pebble's uh, first-generation wearable, where it can go almost a week, really, uh, between charges. That, that, I think, is going to be the big one. I think a lot of people are interested in this. Clearly, the sales numbers have shown it in terms of just how popular the device itself is. However, I, I, I say in about six months, you're going to have a lot of these just sitting on dresser drawers and on nightstands, uh, relatively unused. Uh, that's awfully expensive if you buy the gold one. I have a something oh, no. Else. I mean, it, it's going to be fun for a lot of people, but day in, day out, do you really want another device you're charging every less than a day, every day, what? to keep it functional? And, I mean, granted, that's not such a huge deal, I guess, if you're going to do it along with your phone, but I, I am not convinced, though, that, that these are where they need to be yet, at least in terms of the power requirements and for, I think, just day-to-day. -day. However, I will say, having a wearable in your hand that just simply takes my eyes off my phone for even a little while is great. Just something that I can quickly say, oh, I just got a text. I just got a phone call. Here's who it is. I don't have to reach for my mobile device. I think those kind of usage things are going to be great. And I think that's something Apple users are looking for. But I really just, I think they dropped the ball in terms of just how long the device will actually function in terms of uh, before it needs to be recharged. Well, and that's something they've had a problem with for a while is battery life in, in general. Um, real quickly, keep with, with Robert for a second. Does, does the fact that J.J. Abrams was wearing one yesterday at, uh, at Star Wars Celebration mean anything, or is that just him being cute? He's hip. <laughs> he's, hip. <laughs> he's, hip. He's, he's on the cutting edge. And I think it's going to be a, a, it's a status symbol as much as anything else. These aren't cheap devices, no. and, uh, and they can be very expensive. So, and you put that together with a really – the engineering's beautiful. The Apple hardware in general is fantastic. Uh, I just, I just think there's just a huge interest initially that will quickly fade, unless, unless there's either a breakout app that's just the must-have thing, which I can't see that happening right off the bat, at least for the first six months. And then likewise, I, I can't wait to see in about, like I said, about six to eight months, how reviews go. Or are people still using them on a regular basis? And I hope I'm proven wrong. I'd like to see wearables take off. But it's, I don't need another device that I have to plug in every night in yeah. order to keep it functioning. All right. Uh, Robert just gave me a very nice segue into the next part of the story. Uh, George, uh, our buddies over at Crestron have already started teasing their app uh, for the wearable, for the iPhone, or the iPhone, the, the, the Apple Watch. Uh, so is, is this, you know, where are they headed and, and where do they think that this is going to go? The fact that they're already touting um, an a automation and control app for, uh, for the smartwatch. Well, part of me was curious because what they showed was someone running with it. So it was a picture of a, mm -hmm. a young woman running. Yeah. So that's basically what your wearables are, right? The health, the metrics for all that kind of stuff. I'm not quite clear. We've talked about this in the past where my dream for such a watch would be something that knows where you are, like an RFID that understands velocity, you know, where you're going and direction. And that I could see being something with a bunch of sensors in the house. It knows where you're going and when to turn lights on and off. Yes, and they'll have the standard stuff. Yes, you know, close the door, close the garage. I can see that. You know, the the was it the Schlegel or whatever the lock company is, you can. You know, did I did I turn it off? Yes. Okay. Other than that, I don't know. The interface is really tiny. We said this before about when first iPhones came out, but still, that's a tiny interface for some kind of automation, beyond the very basic stuff. So I'm unclear, very unclear. All right, uh, Mr. Uh, Matt Scott, uh, you live and breathe in, in residential as well as uh, House of Worship. Is this something that, 
I'm not going to ask if you're going to make it available to your <laughs> to your clients, but is this something you're going to um, actively engage them in or with? Well, we've already been asked for them uh, as far as not to, again, not to supply them, but, you know, how can they integrate them? How can we use them? Because even at the, you know, the original keynote when they announced it, Lutron was one of the players that showed the new Cassetta line of lighting control and how it can, uh, you know, again, work with that to turn lights on, turn lights off, yada 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 um i i don't know i i do kind of feel that this is one of those things that you know in a couple of months a lot of them will sit on the shelves just like most of the other wearables that my clients have had over the years uh i was in a one of my client's offices yesterday and his pebble was just sitting charging i asked him if he was just charging it for today and he said no it's probably been there for two weeks um yeah they're i i don't know i'd like to see them succeed it's definitely been the biggest push for wearables that uh, I've seen, uh, just mainly because of Apple's user base. Um, but as far as clients wanting them and wanting to actually do true automation with them, uh, again, without some form of location services or something, I'm just not exactly clear on how that's supposed to function. Outside of, again, maybe utilizing Surrey, uh, again, to, to interface into that locating the app, popping it up and saying, you know, sorry, turn my house off, uh, rather than navigating through, you know, again, the, the, the app process. But I, I really don't know. I, I haven't ordered one yet. Uh, but I will probably pick one up in the next little bit. <laughs> you are my favorite fanboy. I did just say that. Uh, well, no, it, it, but it, it's true. You kind of have to, you know, my, especially my residential user base is probably 75% Apple. And out of that, especially with my higher end clients, most of them, I will say, will purchase one either for themselves or one of their kids and will be tasked with, you know, helping them learn how to use it. So without us actually having one uh, in the office to, to mess around with, that becomes troubling. Okay, so Don, for, Mr. Scott does bring up a really good point. From the commercial side, uh, is this something where integrators need to start at least buying one or two of them uh, to get them in the office and see how they work? Just so when the CEO walks in with his fancy schmancy new uh, Apple Watch, the integrators can say, oh, yeah, we know how to work that, and do, 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 do. There you go. I'm sure every integrator has at least one Apple fanboy or apologist that would be glad to do that as their own little hobby. Um, first of all, disclaimer, as if it's not obvious, I'm not an eye person. So I will not be buying one of these anytime soon. Um, but I think on the commercial front, it's going to be more of a fad or more of a, oh, gee, isn't this cool? And like Robert said, you know, for, for the first five minutes or the first couple of days, this is the best thing ever, and then we just kind of forget about it. I mean, let's let's be honest. Uh, most of us on the call here, Matt it is an exception, are at least Gen X. We've spent the last 20 years forgetting how to wear a watch and not bothering with them because our phone takes that place. And, you know, it's a pain to get it out and look at it, but I'm not going to go back to wearing a watch. It's hard enough for me to remember to wear my Fitbit, you know. And speaking as a woman, not to be a stereotype or anything, but I have yet to see a single smartwatch or wearable device that is in any way elegant or attractive. I mean, yeah, Fitbit or some of the other wearable fitness things have, you know, Tory Burch designer bands that you can get for them. But for the most part, they're clunky and they're ugly. And even as a tech geek, I don't want to wear that. Yeah. Um, you know, I'll hold out for that 
cricket or circuit or whatever it's called, the little bracelet one that projects your phone oh, yes. onto your arm that's in development. I'll, I'll hold out for something I'll like that, that that's sexy and wearable and elegant and not ugly before I'll waste money on something like this. Again, not an I person. I'm sure there are women listening to this podcast or watching that are like, I already have three on pre-order. That's fine. But I, I don't see it really being a player in the commercial space or or my personal world at all. Okay. I think the one thing to keep in mind, though, and, and again, I'm not going to jump out and say it's going to be the best product ever because I, I don't think this generation will be. Um, Apple has had a lot of success with these types of things that nobody else has had. You know, when they brought the iPhone, it, it was, oh, this is big. It's going to take forever to recharge, yada, yada, yada. And it became the number one selling phone in the world. Same with the iPad. I'm not saying that this will be that same success level. But, you know, if you want a company, and I, I said this quite a few months ago on the show, if you want wearables to be cool and you want them to be a mass market product, you need Apple or Google to make one. And Google hasn't really stepped up in that realm, so Apple did, and who knows? It'll be interesting to watch, you know, as we've all kind of speculated, in six months where this product is. Or in eight months when they refresh it and get everyone to buy another one. <laughs> well, let me, let me ask a, a incredibly sexist question, and I'm going to admit that before I even say it comes out of my mouth. Is is it something? And Don, this is for you because I have I have no way to answer this. Is this something where they need to make one for the women for the female market, or is it just it is what it is? And if you want one, there it is. I mean, now granted, I'm I'm a tech geek and I'm one of you guys, so you know I'm not like super uber girly. But speaking on behalf of my gender, uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't know that it would work as as a geek speaking on behalf of my gender. I don't know that it would work to make a girly one. Because traditionally, girly watches are smaller, thinner, more streamlined. That's where I was going. Too small and too thin and too streamlined, you're not going to be able to use the bloody thing. I mean, it is in effect a, a an interface. It's it's a user interface. It has to as it is. I'm not sure people how people with fat fingers are using these things on their wrist because it is a smaller screen. Some people have problems with phones, you know. So if you get too much smaller, it's going to be not usable, not functional, and what's the point at that at that point? So, you know, again, it's my pet project I'm keeping an eye on in the Kickstarter world or to see if it's fiction or not, but something like the little projection-based uh, cr Cricket or whatever, I, I got to look it up and see what it's called, but the, the bracelet that yeah, projects we've your interface you, you, on your arm. Yeah, where you flip it. Yeah. And, you know. Something Apple like that, that would be small. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, Apple does have that one advantage, though, of having Siri built into the majority of their of their mobile mm -hmm. products. And that's one thing that Pebble really doesn't have is a way to do that voice interaction through that, that wristband or through that, through that watch itself. That might be the one way that they'll be able to make it a more effective product right off the bat, rather than have to deal with a tiny display. If it's something that you can simply talk into without having to pull your phone out and... Although you're gonna, you know, do you want it then playing back through your wrist and dealing with that kind of interaction? It'd be nice if it would just go right to your ear, but that's not here yet. But just having that that voice interaction with the mobile device, I think, gives them an advantage over some of the other products, at least until you get into like what Mo Motorola is doing with their product. And I'm sure it has a microphone built in as well that can interface with Android-based handsets, but or or any other handset for that matter. But I. I would say that having Siri is going to be one of the bigger things that they should try to leverage at least. And 
that could then provide all the hooks needed for, you know, be it a control four setup or anybody else's uh, interface, making it just that much more effective or easier for for a, a wider variety of people to be able to interact with the software itself. Yeah, absolutely. Or Americans who speak in a clearly American accent with no regional dialects or slang terms. I have a lot of friends in Scotland, and if you've ever seen the video Siri with the Scottish guy, it's a classic, but it's true that the, the, the voice interface doesn't recognize a lot of things or a lot of accents that people say that frustrates the heck out of my friends across the pond. Tell you that much. I'm just happy I can call Tess Trueheart now. <laughs> <laughs> There's a Gen X reference. I'm sorry. It, it is. It is. All right. Uh, LG is forging ahead, and I am forging ahead with a story uh, on OLED technology. Uh, interesting thing, and this is something that we've talked about a lot on this show, is the different types of technologies. Um, it, real quickly, so LG and, and, and Samsung have kind of, uh, you know, but they've been at each other's throat, let's be honest about it. Uh, this is actually one area where they haven't because Samsung has said, time out on OLED. Uh, we've had some issues. They've had some, you know, some hiccups here. LG, on the other hand, is saying, "Yay, let's go get them." Uh, they're actually looking uh, for partnerships uh, currently in uh, Japan and in China uh, to get their OLED up and running. Uh, Don, where does that put? Uh, well, first of all, what, what does LG know that that Samsung doesn't know when it comes to OLED, or what uh, what do maybe they have up their sleeve that that makes Samsung say, you know, never mind on the OLED. You know, if I knew that, I would have invested and made a bunch of money by now. Because mm -hmm. I, it, 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 you know, and for Robert's benefit, Tim and I are both OLED fanboys, fangirls. Uh, you know, I, I, I've been waiting for this technology to become a reality and just bring one of those flexible, rolled-up screens home and put it on my wall in all glorious 80 inches or whatever. We're ways away from that, but for over 10 years now, we've been waiting for OLED to become a viable commercial technology. I'm still waiting. It's still not in my living room. I'm still disappointed. But it makes me happy every time we get a story like this that someone is forging ahead with it. Uh, I've got some small OLED screens uh, that I use for marketing purposes that are fantastic. They're gorgeous. I love them. I want the big one. I want, I want the dream I've been waiting for for over a decade now. And if LG brings it to me, LG is my favorite this week. If Samsung turns around and brings it to me, they're my favorite. Somebody, damn it, bring me my OLED screen. Well, and I think that's the that's the you know that's the point. There is is, is Samsung isn't your favorite because they said no, thank you. Uh, you know, uh, say, Robert technologies too in terms of how they're going about manufacturing the uh, panels themselves between Samsung and LG. LG decided immediately to say, you know what, we're not going to deal with making individual red, blue, and green OLED materials. We're going to make one flat white material and then put a standard color filter, just like they do with an LCD panel. Whereas Samsung, from the very get-go, said, we want to perfect red, blue, green OLED materials and then make each pixel emissive in that case, rather than have to deal and eliminate the color filter altogether. And that proved to be just, I guess, an insurmountable challenge or an unprofitable one, most likely, yeah. where they just said, I don't know of any other manufacturer, at least with the numbers I've seen, that actually turns a profit on televisions other than Samsung. And it's it's minuscule what they actually make on that. But uh, I think when it came to the OLED, they said they'd take a, a year or two off just to see what happens. And in the meantime, LG has simply forged ahead with sizes up to 77 inches for this year. Granted, the pricing is still expensive, but if you look at even over the last two years, 
everything's about half. The new 4K panels, of course, are going to be the most premium priced, but yeah. otherwise, um, everyone's. This will be the year of high dynamic range content, and maybe certain TVs handle that metadata that will be embedded in these upcoming uh, formats a little bit better than others. But I think when you talk about utter contrast, though. Uh, uh, Don made that point about w what makes OLED look so good. It's how dark black looks, and it's fantastic. And and LG has generally with their OLED panels good out of the box color. Um, some of their video processing is always a little what what's going on, but uh, <laughs> they they have been providing lots of updates for the current generation of OLED panels that seem to address those issues as well. But it's the TV I want. I'm I'm sad to see plasma gone, and and now that OLED. Uh, OLED can do even better contrast, better brightness, and better energy efficiency. So I, I too want that in my living room next if I have to pick one display technology right now, over at least over LCD. Well, yeah, that's, yeah. I knew there was a reason LCD's I like it. good, but it ain't no OLED, so. No. <laughs> no. Isn't, uh, isn't there also an issue, though, that OLED has a, well, a less of a lifespan? They say that some of the reds and some of the uh, uh, other parts of it will not last nearly as long. Well, compared well, to what though, George? Compared to plasma, or compared what? to plasma, or or uh, LED? In general, uh, to LED especially. Like with the yeah. original Sony XEL1, that 11-inch panel they put out, blue would age faster than red and green, and so over time the display became more and more yellow. So you, you spent thousands of dollars for that original 11-inch beauty, but and it was it was gorgeous. Uh, however, that was one of the things that, in particular, probably why LG went with a white OLED material as a backlighting system uh, compared to Samsung working on perfecting red, blue, and green and getting the longevity to where it needed to be. And the last I heard, they have it. Uh, blue isn't as, as you know degrading as it used to be over time, but, um, but I think the costs just aren't there. And I, I'm really curious. I've heard now Samsung's contemplating coming back into the OLED space. So mm. I'll be really curious to see what they do next year. I mean, their current generation of flagship TVs, that JS series with their quantum dot technology and other things, those are fantastic looking sets, but those aren't cheap either. Those are almost, especially with their flagship full array backlit model, uh, the 9500, that's getting into OLED pricing. And and you should see it in my Canada. Oh, <laughs> you can only do that. So there's a lot of cool flagship options this year, and I, I still say OLED's just for the pure eye candy is the one everyone will want, but the prices are going to keep people away, especially at least with the new 4K panels. Yeah, absolutely. All right. And George, George, to be fair, people said the same thing about plasma when it was plasma versus LCD, that, oh, the mm -hmm. plasmas burn in, the plasmas are terrible, the plasmas have horrible longevity. And since my OLED is not on my living room wall, my Pioneer Pioneer PDP... PDP 503 CMX is still hanging there all these years later, and it's just starting to get a pink spot in the middle. We're, we're talking about replacing it, but it still looks good. So, you know, t take these. It's, it's not as good quality-wise with a grain of salt in some regards because for what it gives you versus its couple of drawbacks, I'll still take the OLED. Well, and to keep in mind, especially, again, in the residential space, we're still seeing people upgrading panels now every five to seven years at the maximum uh, or at least shifting locations and upgrading their ma main panel. Yeah. Um, yeah, most of our clients are, are bumping every four years uh, as far as down the chain. So if the OLED only lasts, say, six years before it's really questionable and the, you know, 
that owner bumps it into a secondary viewing location or a third viewing location, does it really matter? And at that point, do they really care about how much it cost four or five years ago? Like I have a plasma I bought for at dealer, like 3200 that I still have and still use. But I, I don't complain about the price point anymore. No, well, not too much. Well, not too much. Yeah, that's that's a valid point. So. <laughs> All right, uh, from uh, from HeronFidelity uh, dot com. Uh, uh, Robert has has a website actually where I get a lot of stuff. Uh, the uh, article is called Deal Alert. Talks about uh, the fact that the 2015s are hitting the stores, hitting Amazon, hitting other places. That means that we have a glut of 2014s, which means that there's a number of different deals on here. The interesting thing, a couple to point out, there's a 50-inch Vizio for 530 bucks. Uh, you can get a 65-inch LG for almost, you know, basically 1600. Uh, George, we'll kick this one off with you. Where, where is? We just talked about price with Matt. Where is the price? Where is the magical uh, area that we're going to land? But you know, by the time everything is said and done and the dust settles, you go out to to Amazon or, or where have you. What should you expect to pay for a forty or fifty inch? Uh, you know, that's. <laughs> to you asked me four years ago, and it would have been a different story. Ask me now. I think you're looking at the five to a thousand dollars. That's your tipping point. It's okay. Okay. Um, you know, at least from I'm looking from both perspectives, not just as a selling from as an integrator, but also just walking into Best Buy and exactly. buying one. Um, I think for that price, for that size, that clarity, you would go, okay, that seems fair. Ask me two years ago, and I'm like, no, 300 bucks is all I got, baby, and I'm gonna buy with that to Fords. Um, you know, and scale that. Uh, to that end, though, I'm gonna take our guest here to task for a moment. Listed in the beginning of this deal alert is that it's shot for quality 1080p or 4K UHD. This is something that integrators chomp at the <laughs> bit about, my friend. They are not the same thing to us, and it's one of those Ooh. marketing things that we get really, really tight panties about. They're not the same. Maybe your that panties are the same. I'm just frustrated. <laughs> yeah. well, George, George is older. His panties are older. so. No, but that was CEA's how they want it branded. And personally, I, I think it should just be called ultra high definition. Uh, I think the 4K should be left for the true 4K devices out there, especially when you talk about the difference between those 256 extra pixels between 4K and, and how 4K in cinema, at least, it's a variety of about at least three different formats that I'm aware of in terms of the uh, pixel resolution. Mm -hmm. So yeah, uh, and when I look at projectors like Sony's new 350, that's a true 4K panel device, uh, or it uses true 4K panels within the projector itself. Yeah, I wish there was more definition, but right, I mean, today I was listening to an ad on TV, and they weren't even using UHD. They were just calling every TV a 4K TV. And, <laughs> and I know that drives integrators crazy, and you kind of have to just look at it, though, on the consumer side of things. It's, it's all too complicated already. The naming convention is horrible, but uh, and and everyone just assumes, oh, it's 4K, it's four times the number of pixels. That's what Bingo. that means. It's like, no, it has nothing to do really with that. It was more about the the horizontal resolution, <laughs> and, and compared to where we were using 1080p before, which referred to the vertical resolution. And you know, could we make it any more complicated for people out there? And that's just if I if I do anything or I use any kind of terminology, there's usually a reason for it, and and it's. Yeah, I should probably just write an article about the madness of it. Actually, I did something specifically for 
when CEA made that decision for the official naming and the branding for 4K UHD. Uh, I did write up an article about that. And it, just to let people know, it's like, look, I, I'm tired of going back and forth. Uh, I'd prefer if we would have just stuck to UHD at 2160p, but it didn't happen. <laughs> so people hate 2160p, I think, more than they do uh, saying 4K. It so doesn't 4K. roll off the tongue. That's why. It's, it's the <laughs> yeah. new math. Okay, so hang on for a second. We, we, we've kind of jumped stories, which I have no problem with, right? I have no problem with it, but, but we've, we're, I'm going to bring this one in here because uh, our, our buddy Chris Janes uh, runs Mersive, and, and I, I kind of busted his chops a little bit on this very subject. Um, this is a, a picture, if you're watching the video, this is a picture of the Solstice Pod, which is Solstice is a, uh, the Solstice Pod, um, quote unquote, is purpose built for wireless media streaming. Um, talks about native support for 4K. And yet it has a Ultra HD and a 4K uh, piece on the box. So here's what I did. I, I actually, you know, did something reporter-ish, and um, I, I said, I said, okay, Chris Janes, uh, what's what's the deal with this? So this is this is the response we got. Quote unquote: The Solstice Pod gives users another option who want to enable space wireless communication but don't have existing PCs. It goes on to talk about some more uh, about the thing. Uh, the importance, uh, this is important because software involves faster dedication than hardware, and when you combine Solstice with a hardware platform, that, that is driven by, by large consumer trends. The result is a very high-performance package that is low-cost. We and our AV resellers think the pod um, will allow Solstice to address tens of millions of meetings rooms and classrooms. The Ultra... The 4K Ultra HD refers to the consumer version of 4K, which is an interesting statement. Uh, displays that run at 3840 by 2160 and not the cinematic, to Robert's point, standard that is 4096 by 2160. We felt it was important to address to support the more common 16:9 aspect ratio of 4K television, which I actually agree with. So, uh, from our buddy Chris James and Chris says, you know, uh, good luck with the show. So, thanks, Chris. Uh, to, to you know, to to Chris's point, uh, they're they're going after what Robert said. It's it's the CEA. It, it's the Consumer Electronics, and and that's you know I have no problem making them the bad person here, right? From as far as you know, geeks and and uh, video files who say you know give me my true my true 4K. However, we do have like five different resolutions. We even have one technically that's five thousand. So we're we going to call that 5K if, if we're going to get real technical here. Uh, so, George, you, you kicked this off. I'll kick it back to you. What, uh, where are we going to call it? Is, is Robert White right? Are we going to just do UHD? Divide by pi. Oh, I, you know, it's, it is. It's already out of the box. It's a Pandora's box of nonsense. And this is why I sort of brought it up. It's Nobody knows the difference. Half the integrators kind of know the difference. It is. It's divide by pi or what is it? Divide by zero. Is that the joke as well? Yes. I, they've got to rebrand it. They got to make it 4K. I think everything's 4K and it's cinema 4K and home 4K and everybody will get that. You've got two levels. <laughs> two right. lines no waiting. Jeez. All right, Robert, from from your standpoint, is this just is it just UHD or 4K or what are we doing? I I stick with what CEA is going with just because of that because when you get into the higher end, uh, when you get into projection in particular and cinema production, those are those are beyond what the typical consumer is ever going to experience, um, and, and 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 in terms of the products we're dealing with today, uh, the the line's been drawn in the sand at least in terms of just the naming of the format. 
like I said, I, I kind of wish they would have stuck with, you know, that, that vertical resolution perhaps, but, you know, maybe 1080p was, you know, they didn't want to make it any more complex than that. So I think just saying 4K, people get their head wrapped around that. And if we want to educate people beyond that, it's like, hey, look, when you, when, you go into the, when you go into a commercial theater that has a 4K projector, that is actually a little bit different in terms of the color performance, in terms of the actual resolution. And, and when you talk about uh, cinema in terms of crafting the content, you have different aspect ratios there as well. And it, it is, it's, it is it in itself its own subject that could be studied a little bit and, and brought. But as far as consumers go, you know, it's a 16 by 9 format. It is kind of confusing also that these most of the 4K TVs I deal with right now actually do accept the full 4096 by, you know, 2160 or, or whatever resolutions. They actually will take in the full 4K format in addition to the UHD formats as well. But but as far as consumers go, everything they're dealing with is going to be that 3840 by 2160 content and, and the streaming materials that they're receiving. And... Although I will I will give Netflix credit when you are watching a 4K stream it does say 2160p uh, it doesn't actually say anything else uh, I don't believe it does although when you go through the guide I think it says ultra HD uh, yeah. there and yeah. so it's a little little crazy yeah like CEA is trying but apparently well they they've got a lot on there's it. a lot of ambiguity or just yeah. a a little bit of wishy washiness in terms of how we name things but. Yeah. Never makes it easier for people to get it through their head that, you know, as much as I hate it, I like the fact that at least 4K and four times the resolution of 1080p sort of align, uh, even though they they don't, you know, there's no direct correlation there. It's still at least uh, it's it's a it's a talking point where you can get the concept across to someone and then get beyond the fact that you know we're not even talking about compression, uh, distribution, bit rates audio quality and other aspects of it that that are equally as important in terms of just straight pixel resolution or contrast i people ignore that one but going back to oled just for a second that's that that is arguably the biggest piece of eye candy out there right now is either having a super bright display in a bright room environment uh or in a dark room environment having something that can do that epic black level that just draws you into it and and those to me beyond what we're going to name you know the format most people I'm not going to say that. I was going to say that some people couldn't tell the difference between 2K and 4K content on most TVs anyway. But that, that you know, most that's disingenuous. There are some people that can't tell the difference between 720 and, and 1082. So that's yeah. And and in this compressed video streaming world we're living in right now, uh, it's it's harder and harder to do. So I I still am very thankful for things like the Blu-ray format. And hopefully, looking forward uh, later this year, we'll have something that can do similar quality at a 4K. Be it, be it full 4K or, or you know, consumer 4K uh, uh, content quality. So, yeah. Robert just brought up a point I've been saying on this show for a couple of years now is we, we live in a schizo world because at the same time we're demanding higher and higher K, higher and higher quality at our, our video, and even higher and higher quality in our high fidelity, perfect sound with lossless everything and just just perfect acoustics we're listening to compressed mp3s and we're watching you know pixelated youtube videos that we think are fantastic and it's like the middle ground has been lost and we're, we're in an era of extremes both on the audio front and the video front um you know i, I just think of ozzy to paraphrase him from that phone commercial how many bloody k are there anyway you know just wh wh where are we going here folks yeah. figure it out yeah, absolutely 
All right. Uh, our next little story here is somewhat about 4K-ish and, and, and display technology. I think I know what's, what, uh, what Robert's answer is going to be on this, but we'll, we'll still ask that nonetheless. Uh, Silicon Core at NAB, at NAB this week um, released their LED uh, displays for broadcast. Uh, and what I want to ask is this, is real quickly, and, and, and Matt, we'll start with you because you do a fair amount, especially with House of Worships. What do we think is the best display for, for broadcast video? Uh, when it, and what we're, we're talking about is we're talking about broadcast environments where you're doing video production. Uh, is it LED? Is it OLED? Is it AMOLED? Is it plasma? What is it, What is the best one here? We used to love plasma for it. Um, but as especially in the house of worship market, it has gone very heavily LED. Uh, again, mainly because OLED has not been readily available. Uh, although I know we've done some systems that have some of the little seven-inch OLED monitors for CCU control, color correction control, and whatnot, and they're fabulous. Uh, at the same time, most of those facilities are doing uh, production with, uh, or uh, sorry, finished production with Apple Cinema displays. And, you know, again, it, it's just, it's kind of all over the map depending on who you talk to and what, honestly what they can afford. If they can afford to put uh, some, some LEDs in, that's what they're going to put in, whether, whether that's the best or not. Um, it's such a hard, hard one to look at anymore, especially you know, specifically coming from my house of worship background. Uh, it, it always comes down to the budget point. All right. Uh, Which I realized didn't answer your question at all. No, you, you, you said sort of. You, you said it depends, which is not really an answer. Are but you running an for office? Is that what's happening? Yes, he is. In, I, am. In I am. I'm going to stay on message. Uh, all right, Don, from your standpoint. That's a great question. Let me go over here. No. From your standpoint, what's the best one for broadcast? Oh, sorry. Did you ask me? I yes, ma'am. Yes, I, I asked you over the rude Canadian. Everyone's talking. Um, I, honestly, you know, we don't do a ton of broadcast. Uh, whatever looks and works the best in the situation. I, I don't believe that there's ever a single technology that works in every situation, because we've over the years, the integrators I've worked for, we've come up with perfect formulas for boardrooms. And then we go into a boardroom that, where that formula just does not work and we have to use a more custom solution. Or we come up with a perfect formula for situation rooms. Same thing. You're always going to find that one guy, that one place, that one room that's going to defy your expectations and require something completely different. So I try to keep an open mind on these things and say, you know, for that guy, OLED is the exact answer for broadcast. But for this guy over here or this room, it's not going to work. And here's why. And, and just try to stay flexible because as soon as you say this is the answer, it's not the answer. Okay. At least, at least in our experience. All right, uh, George. From from a staging standpoint, and you know your other various sundry uses, what's what's the best one? Do you think? That's really not an answer that you can make definitively. It depends on what you're shooting with, where you're shooting, what environment you're in. I mean, plasma and LED work just fine. Depending on where you are, the big studios use a lot of that. OLED would be a lovely thing. Um, but this seems to be shooting to be the ultimate, if not the penultimate, then. Saying, hey, we're not you know, where the end game is, but we are very, very close. Uh, they do help in what they say they're building reduce a lot of the concerns broadcasters have about moraying and 
artifacts that you know can occur based on how it interacts with the camera and broadcast compression, etc. Um, so it's not really a definitive answer. You have to sort of know your environment, know what kind of studio setup, and what you're doing camera-wise. While broadcast can be very rigid in how everybody does it, you go from the studio to uh, the live NFL game in that little broadcast booth. It's all different. You got to sort of make that assessment. So there's lots of answers out there, and that's a reason why. All right, all right, Mr. Heron, you have the last word on this. What uh, what is the best uh, solution as far as displays for for broadcast? I, I think in this case, it's good to point out to people that this is LEDs, as in not an LCD panel. Yes. Uh, this is actually, you know, they're, they're saying with the latest generation, they're down to 1.5 millimeter per, per, per pixel. I'm assuming that's hopefully per sub-pixel maybe, or, or maybe not. Maybe that is for, then that would be split three ways. Sony showed off an LED prototype at CES a couple of years ago, and it was fantastic. And one advantage that this type of direct LED display uh, would have over a standard LCD panel would be off-axis viewing, uniformity. Uh, you can control the binning of these LEDs very carefully. And and other than when you get into l where you have to reduce the brightness of the display for some reason, and you might get into where the power management or, or, or flicker artifacts that occur with displays like that, uh, when, on, on most typical LEDs, uh, basically, if you're going to reduce the brightness, you're simply increasing the strobe time, basically, on it. So that could be an issue, but I think as far as just uniformity, um, the directionality of the brightness would be something I'd be curious to see how it looks off axis and things like that. But in a broadcast environment, typically everything's aimed very carefully. Yep. Uh, you would have great control over the lighting in particular for the panel across edge to edge, corner to corner, and it, it should make for a fantastic display. I'm curious about uniform or longevity. I mean, I, I assume that you know their designs are as good as anyone's, and these should last a good long time. Um, but uh, also with heat production as well. Typically with a lot of these panels, um, they, they require good cooling. I'm also thinking of like outdoor LED displays as yeah. well, but like for ballparks and things like that where it's a whole different issue. But um, it, it seems to me it'd be a great replacement for plasma with better characteristics, especially with the difficulty of doing good uniformity with an LCD panel. Uh, and that it could be a win-win, and, and I hope it's successful. I, I don't... I don't see these necessarily being used in production environments where you're sitting in a darkened room doing careful, you know, either editing or or coloring uh, of video content, maybe. Uh, but there's no reason I guess they couldn't. Um, the, I go back to that demo that Sony showed off with their I forget, the crystal LED technology. Yes. Mm -hmm. It looked fantastic. Uh, however, you know, what's the cost of that on the consumer side i don't think that's coming anytime soon i think that's even more expensive than an led pan or an oled panel would be uh but it is it is kick butt technology and i love leds in general as just a as a lighting technology and as outdoor display technology and if they can make it work in in the stage of indoor uh av production all the better well then and sony just kind of dropped that whole crystal thing after that after that CES, didn't they? I mean, they they was they said, you know, here's this great new technology we have, and six months later at the, at the very next trade show, they said, yeah, never mind. Here's here's an actual, you know, a, a real Sony's, LED. Sony is always a couple years ahead of where they probably should be in terms of products, uh, and they'll make things that they they basically within their own line of consumer products created a 4K ecosystem that included everything from the cameras to the final display. 
with a content delivery system, and it was all extremely expensive, but they put it together and even expanded color initially with uh, some of their technologies, and a lot of it was just a little too soon, or it was like, oh, I have to buy all in with Sony, and I can't yep. mix and match other devices. So I, I love them for what they do, and they push the boundaries, especially in consumer electronics, but it doesn't necessarily make for a very successful product run on, on certain things. So, yeah, but, just... but it makes for a very smug dawn. I don't know, Tim, <laughs> if, you go back, if you go back to the AV Week right after that show in January of whatever, two years ago, yeah. one year yeah. ago, whenever that was, and you were all upset that ROLED was going away because Sony came out with this uh, Crystal HD, and I said, it's not going to last. OLED is coming. It's not going to replace ROLED. Nope. Thank you. I, I think the biggest challenge for OLED will be in the next couple of years will be the quantum dot technology. And currently it's done as an enhancement for LCD panels, but that's really kind of a side business. I, the direct emission where you can do a direct electron stimulation of a, of a quantum dot material, have it be emissive, uh, has the potential then to give OLED a real run. Uh, but those panels aren't out yet. And I, I am really looking forward to seeing what happens because if that can be done, and as far as I know, quantum dot production is cheap relatively compared to what they can do with OLED materials. And, and if you can create the right backplane to simply stimulate those particles in such a way uh, compared to how they're doing it currently with just you know enhancing an LED backlight system, uh, that's, that's going to be game-changing. Or at least it'll be another great option for a thin flat panel design that, that goes toe-to-toe -to -toe with OLED in terms of brightness and black level. And that's something I'm really looking forward to seeing in the next few years. Well, and that's the whole thing about, about emissive versus transmissive technology, not to, not to sidetrack on that, but, but Robert makes a good point. When you have emissive technology, you're able to create right, the, the, the blacks. You're able to create the, the, the reds and the greens. With transmissive, which, it, and, and somebody correct me if I'm wrong, because all three of you are smarter than I am. Transmissive, I've always explained to people, is, is basically a digital stained glass window, right? Where you have this light source and you've got it, it's going through some sort of membrane that's actually the picture. How are you going to create black with light? <laughs> that, that's always been my, my contention is that's why I love plasma so much. That's why I love OLED. That's why I love the quantum dot stuff is because it's at, the light source is actually creating the picture, right? Um, and, and, you know, Robert makes a good point about that. It, it's, it's, you know, it, it, that's why it's just, you know, the, that, the emissive technology in general, um, that technology, that, that uh, is, is just better in general. So, all right. You know, we often bash Sony on this show because from an integrator's point of view, they really haven't done a heck of a lot to make us happy. Uh, and we've sort of, well, we've made fun of them. But Robert brings up a good point. Robert, I'm going to tell you, I, to us, what this sounds like with your description of them doing really advanced stuff, you know, there's the term, what, a comedian's comedian? Mm -hmm. Comedians get what he's doing. It's with rhythm. I really start to think Sony is sort of the technology technologist. You know, I, only if you're really deep do you get what they're doing. You go, oh, man, that was groovy. But the rest of the world just goes, where are they going? All right, I'll buy that guy. Somebody else. <laughs> Mastered in 4K. Yeah. <laughs> oh, jeez, stop that. <laughs> but that also incorporated their new, their expanded color palette beyond the current Rec. 709. And you know what? It, it was something else they kind of pushed along, but it just fell flat with consumers because... It was it was a Sony only thing per se, and you know going forward we're looking at things like bringing DCI P3 color space to the consumer side now, and I think that will prove to be much more popular. So we'll be approaching the color quality of of commercial cinema 
in the home, hopefully later this year with content that's appropriately authored. But yeah, uh, I, I agree. I think Sony does amazing work with creating these ecosystems of, of playing with, you know, greater color palettes and greater resolution. And here's the whole end to end in terms of making that work. But, you know, if they can't make money doing it, it, it just won't be around. And unless you have a successful cell or smartphone line, uh, backing up your product development, it's, it's, it's a challenging environment nowadays to, to, to keep at it, building TVs and, and taking risks. And, uh, I, I wish they keep doing it. I hope they do. And but, uh, otherwise we're stuck with a bunch of, it is a commoditized environment anyway, as it is, but still. Yeah. I mean, you, and you, you've made a good point earlier about, you know, nobody makes money really making displays. I mean, Sony's ecosystem is, is, is from the top down, right? They, they create the movies that are, you know, they do them in 4k and, and they're looking for an entire, you know, range. Like, you know, you want to get Sp Spider-Man in 4k, you want to see it the way it was really intended. Well, then you have to get a Sony display and i think somewhat somewhat that's that's what they're planning on you know i will give them credit though they have the best they have the only as far as i know uh well one of the few consumer 4k streaming products with their fmpx 10 uh digital uh 4k media streamer media player whatever it's called uh that they recently opened up with a firmware update to allow it to work with any 4k tv now that supports the the latest copy protection standard uh hdcp 2.2 so if you had a t if you made that investment and you were just looking for something to connect to it, uh, there you go. At least that's one way I've seen Sony back off a little bit about being, oh, you have to plug this into a Sony product, otherwise it just won't happen. So yeah, I wasn't aware of that. That is that is good that they've done that because typically you're right. One thing they've done though, so and yeah. it's still a still a pricey product for for 4K distribution, but it is the best I've seen as far as quality goes so far. So. Yeah. All right. Uh, as we wrap up here, I'm gonna see if I can't, you know, break the entire internet and see if I can't fi figure this out here. Um, from our friends at Ashley's Core dot org, uh, org. Um, what I'm showing on the screen here, if if you go to Studio dot org, um, it, it's a it's a beginner's level of of, of virtual or, or visual um, coding. I'll put a link on on the on the show page, but uh, it, it's it's based off of Disney's Infinity characters, and if you're not familiar with Infinity. Um, I, I've, you know, it's, it's, it's open architecture, um, gaming where you buy these little characters, you put them on the platform and, you know, you bring it up and you can be Buzz Lightyear. You can be, uh, Captain Jack Sparrow. You can be Hero and Baymax, uh, from the, the, the movie. And this runs you through several different levels on how to, well, code, you know, visually. Um, and so what we're doing here is, you know, you, you say, okay, here, there we go. We, we're making the little guy run. Uh, and you takes you through several different levels on how to visually code. Now, is this hard coding? No. Is this lines and lines of, 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 of uh, HTML code? Absolutely not. And, and I would be, I'll be the first to admit that. However, it's a start and it, it's a start for it with as someone who looks at my kids as, as they grow up and then their dad does what he does. Right. And, and I look at, at trying to hire programmers um, in seeing where they're going to come from. This to me is a, is a really great start to get people to get kids interested, guys and, you know, guys and girls, both interested at, as at a young age. Um, so the question to you as as my wonderful smart panel uh, Matt, we'll start with you. What other technologies, what other uh, platforms are out there to get young people involved in coding uh, at a young age? That's a rough one. I don't, 
I don't know of many, say, cutting-edge platforms that are, you know, not based in, in the traditional methods of, of coding. And even, you know, specifically from the web side of things, there's very, you know, coding is almost disappearing for anyone but actual advanced users. Um, yeah, this one is, is very, very cool and very cool to see. Uh, but outside of some of the, you know, again, maybe some of the Apple products that, that allow kids to, to code little little web apps and, and whatnot, um, there's very little. It seems to be one of those industries, at least to my knowledge, that, you know, you really have to almost jump in with both feet before you're really going to be able to get a good grounding on it. Um, but also my, my son isn't really at that level where he's starting to code yet. Well, why not? He's 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 what two months old? So nah, six weeks. Six weeks. Six and a half weeks. Six Aww. weeks. Two months. Oh, come on, Aww. he can do Python then. Exactly. Well, no, he can do. I got, at, at six weeks, he can do Ruby on Rails at least. Yeah, Ruby know. on Rails is, is a good little starter starter platform. Well, you know what this is actually, and I'm going <laughs> to say this is Mickey Bits, Mickey Bytes, of yeah. a program called Scratch. On on the on the on the on the on the the Raspberry Pi. Yeah, I can't. Well, no, not Raspberry Pi. It was made by um, uh, uh, MIT. No, but MIT, if you if you uh, but yeah, if you if you buy a Raspberry Pi um, and oh, you do the, the basic install, it comes with Scratch. But go ahead, George. Uh, it looks just like it. So unless they're Disney and they don't care about sort of you know theme copyrights or whatever they call that, it looks just like it looked. They put they put a Disney skin. They made a Mickey bite and over uh, Scratch. But it's that's another one you're asking. There's Scratch, which yeah. is got a whole community it's sort of an open source community of making things and sharing um, so, uh, Robert from your standpoint uh, what what's ways to get kids involved in technology at an early age I, I love the fact that Raspberry Pi includes something like that I mean that that is $40 hardware you can buy on Amazon and and it, it, there's so much you can do with it in terms of you know like a, either a headless computer to and and running code that you can write yourself. The learning aspect of it, I think it's it's most important to focus on just making sure kids have access to the internet, uh, number one, an affordable access for everyone, because there are so many amazing resources online right now that you can visit to, to learn to code, everything from Code Academy, code.org, um, I even want to say, what is it, uh, Saul Khan's website, Khan Academy, yes. although not code specific. It, that is such a resource that's just free and available, and it lets you get hands-on. And with things like the Raspberry Pi community, where you can you can you can look and see the hardware it is and how you affect it with software, uh, that to me is just awesome. And the resources, be it a YouTube video to the forums that uh, evolve around these products and services, and and it, it has never been a better time. I think it's simply a matter of exposing kids to the variety of sources out there start with the basics you know uh, give them the introduction to it i think the raspberry pi demo would be ideal because it's like hey look here's a here's something most people can afford or a lot of people can afford uh, as far as the hardware goes and then here are here are just reams of examples in terms of how to get started in terms of actually either cut and pasting mode to finally getting your fingers dirty and uh is that me no, that. <laughs> and just to getting more hands-on with actually writing and crafting and and starting simple too, and that 
where I think that's where I think the websites like Code Academy and Code.org do such a good job of of getting you in. And if you want to take it further, where you get into you know everything from C plus plus to assembly code, if you want to go further down that path, but just having the basic concepts, even writing a web page from scratch, HTML or or CSS now, uh, those are practical skills that you will use forever, uh, especially as we're a more online you know society so to speak. And and just having, but it all starts with that initial having having good, affordable access to the internet, and and nowadays high speed access is a must. So, uh, my own city is is actually implementing downtown, taking some of the old classic signs around town and using those as as points to install uh, wireless hotspots. Oh, wow. And the thing I don't understand though is a lot of kids now are with mobile devices and how how you can do training of some kind on a mobile product to make it easier. Because if kids aren't walking around with a notebook or sitting at a workstation, um, coding, to me, I'd have to be in front of a workstation, preferably with a couple displays, to really learn as I'm as I'm trying to code and do things, so I can look in one window, see the results in the other kind of thing. But um, there's a lot of ways of doing it, and and there are a lot of great m mobile experiences I've had with learning, um, even with like language learning, like Duolingo, where they gamify. Uh, a, a way to learn a second language. If they can do something similar on a mobile side with the basic concepts of learning to program, I think that'll go a long way toward exposing more more kids to it early on. And support your high schools too, and your and your grade schools. Uh, I I haven't been I haven't taken a tour of my local schools in a while, and I, I would hope that they're they're pushing that kind of learning as hard as possible. But it's something I'm less familiar with. I have to ask my friends with kids. <laughs> All right, uh, Don. From your standpoint, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, building on what Robert just said, um, there are a lot of options out there. I know Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts both have technology engineer, and they built an acoustics lab with hands-on lab activities for brownies to go and take the acoustic lab and learn these programming skills and acoustic setup skills and get badges and get brownie points <laughs> for Jeez. doing it. Things like that are fantastic, you know? Check with your local schools. I mean, granted, I'm not as young as Matt or kids that are brownies now, but part of the reason I'm sitting here as a woman in technology is, you know, our era, we're the ones that learned to do basic programming in school. We sit there in junior high and learn how to make things blink on those horrible, you know, monochrome monitors. And then a couple years later, you know, learning hand how to hand code HTML in Notepad. Yep. Like, I'm dating myself, but that kind of stuff really was cool. It was something that not everybody could do. It was awesome to learn. And those skills brought me to where I am now. So, you know, just even if there's nothing in your area for schools or for brownies, Boy Scouts, any other youth activity, even if your local summer camp doesn't offer it, man, we're all tech people. We're all geeks. Go find a kid that has an interest and say, hey, if it's cool with your parents or your school, I'll come and show you some of this stuff because it's awesome. Give them an internship or, you know, a free free summer workshop, something. There are all ways that we can build not just the skills for programming, but the skills for technology, because the Lord knows we all have a hard time hiring skilled tech people in the AV world. That's a way to do it. Build them young. Yeah, and Robert made a good point with Khan Academy. Khan Academy is not just, if you've never heard of it, just go on Google and, and type in Khan Academy, because it's, it's a fabulous resource in general uh, if you want to learn about most anything. Also, uh, iTunes University uh, is a good resource as well, where they have generally... Go ahead. 
hacker spaces too. Uh, mm. They've been springing up in my local area quite a bit, based either upon the Make scene uh, with Make Magazine or uh, just individual, depending on either maybe you're into 3D printing side of things or with just building individual electronic components using things like, you know, be it Raspberry Pi or some of the other hardware that's very modifiable. And there's there's a lot of different aspects now where you can get more hands-on uh, in local communities. It helps to live near a major city, but if you're out in the middle of nowhere, that's a whole different story. That's where I think then the Internet access becomes a, a better player or a, a more key thing to have and be exposed to and be able to use that. Well, that's a that's basis. a whole other conversation, right? If you are in a rural community, the, the, there's, there's two sides of that. You you If you are in a rural community... The likelihood of you having high-speed internet is is drastically reduced, and that's a whole other conversation yeah. we can have. <laughs> so, all right, guys, uh, thank you so much, all of you, uh, for joining us. Uh, with us has been Miss Av Dawn from NetAV. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And where can people find you? In a pinch, you can find me on Twitter at AV Dawn. I'm also around AV Nation. I'll be at AV Nation uh, at the booth, if not anywhere else, at the tweet up and stuff at Infocom. And of course, at NetAV, net-av.com. I'm 97% launched our brand new website, so go check it out. And uh, our brand new employee, I'm sure, has has uh, he's watching the show right now. But uh, oh, oh, go ahead and tell people who, who who you're working with now. Yeah, so at A.V. Grump, formerly at Mr. A.V. Dawn, uh, as of the beginning of May, we'll be working at NetAV as well. So we're getting the band back together and uh, going to be working together for the foreseeable future. So yeah, looking that, forward to it. Working with your husband, that's an interesting one. So uh, we'll, we'll have to follow that one. Uh, Mr. George Tucker from World Stage, thank you, sir. Thank you for having me on. Uh, folks can find me, of course, here at AV Nation on the various and sundry shows I produce at Tucker Tuesday on Twitter and Commercial Integrator I write for. So you can go check them out there. All right. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Uh, Matt D. Scott, thank you, sir. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Where can people find you? Uh, you can find me at Matt D. Scott or at Omega Audio Video as well as OmegaAudioVideo.com. Right. Or on the porch. Or on the porch, on the apparently, porch. which is where he said hey. it. So. Hey, we finally got a day in the 70s with sun, so it was equal distances to my house or the office. The office doesn't have a deck. So, there yeah, you go. I went home. And, and he also writes for, for SCN magazine. So Yes, I write for SCN and all kinds of goodies. Uh, and last but certainly not least, uh, Mr. Robert Heron from uh, Heron Fidelity. Thank you, sir. Hey, thank you very much. It was a pleasure hanging out with you guys today. Thank you. And if anybody's interested in, in some of the stuff that you're doing, where would they find you? Uh, check out my website, heronfidelity.com, or follow me on Twitter, at Robert Heron. And those are the, you can find everything else I'm doing through those portals. So okay. feel free. <laughs> <laughs> very good. All right. Uh, my, my name is Tim Albright. Uh, most likely don't follow me. Uh, but go by the website if you would, please. Uh, there's an awful lot of people that do an awful lot of cool things there. avnation.tv. AVNation.tv, you will find this very program and a host of others. Uh, we have a brand new uh, EdTech uh, show coming down the pipeline uh, next week, uh, which is our education-focused show, looking at college and higher ed for AV. Uh, we have a new uh, Live Life coming down. 
And Don mentioned one just posted. One just posted. Apparently, there you go. Yeah, about RF mics. See, that's what happens when you have the producer of the show on. He he tells you these things. So, new live life, new lighting guy coming down next week, and a new AV crosstalk just posted. All right, well, there you go. See, and a new AV social set to record in the next week, provided everyone's schedules stay clear. See, Robert, I don't do anything here. They just they all just. I was going to say the AV Tweeps hashtag is yours as well, isn't it? Well, it's not. No. no it's, we, we claim ownership. We claim okay, ownership. No, I mean, you can't really own it, but yeah. I follow it. Truth be told, it was established by uh, one Johnny Moda back a couple of years ago. Oh, okay. uh, he, still, he still is one of those guys, but it was quickly uh, absorbed and utilized by the AV integration industry. So. Yeah, absolutely. Because I actually keep that on my feed, and it's a great resource and a and it's fun just to see what other people are doing, especially on the integrator side. I, I, that's, you know, a big part of what I do. I mean, I love calibration and display testing, but how, seeing how it all gets put together is, uh, is awesome. And yeah. it's a good, it keeps me in the loop. Very cool. Yeah, so, so we do a thing. Uh, if you're in the Orlando area, uh, come uh, June, what is it, 18th now, um, we're doing a, a tweet-up. Uh, where we have the folks that follow AV Tweets. Um, it's a it's a networking event, uh, get together. You don't have to be on Twitter uh, if you're going to Infocom. Uh, but come by, uh, we have a little room there, uh, W223A. I've got that ingrained in my head now uh, at the Orlando uh, the Orange County Convention Center in, in Orlando there on International Drive. Free food, free drinks. Free food and free drinks and a big giant... And fabulous company. Some of them are fabulous. Mm. <laughs> we're all a little fabulous tim let's admit it Come okay on. a little fabulous. okay i'm a little fabulous all right uh <laughs> but that's gonna be it to it uh avnation.tv avnation.tv thanks so much for listening thanks so much for watching this has been av week